0: You are listening to the Sermon Podcast of Nielsville Presbyterian Church, a Christ-centered church in Germantown, Maryland. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at neelsville.org.: We will continue our series in, in Hosea 13, and so I want to ask us a question. If I were to ask you uh, this question, how would you define hope? what would you say? What is your hope in? Right? right, We look at what's going on in this world today and just we see the effects of many different types of effects that have gone on because of the virus, not only people being um, catching that disease, but also just the ramification it has on countries, on, 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 on small businesses, on the stock market. And so uh, my question is, what are we hoping in? And how does that compare to biblical hope? This morning, we see God's people in the midst of soon destruction by the Assyrians, rejecting hope that God provides in the midst of their trials. But again, Hosea graphically illustrates the depths and the magnitude of God's people's rebellion. Bottom line, they have forgotten God. They've forgotten the covenant-keeping God who's been faithful to always keep his promises to them. This passage gives us a crystal clear reason on how they came to this dark, destructive place in their lives. So follow along as, I, as God speaks through Hosea in chapter 13. Hosea chapter 13. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling, and he was exa- exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more, make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen, And it said of them, those who offer human sacrifices, kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist, or like the dew that goes early away, like the shaft that swirls from the threshing floor, or like the smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had gazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore they forgot me. So I am am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of their cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast, through rip and, and would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are your rulers of those in whom you said, give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger and I took them away in my wrath. Took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For the right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. I shall ransom them from the power of soul. I shall redeem them from death. Death, where are your plagues? Oh, soul, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among the brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness. And his fountain shall dry up, his spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God, and they shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women ripped open. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, again, we come to this this graphic chapter in Hosea that describes uh, your, again, your judgment, your your discipline on God's people who refuses again and again to repent, who continue to go after things that, are don't, that do not bring life, that do not bring hope, that do not bring joy. So, Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, as we work through this text this morning, this passage, that, God, your Spirit would work to draw us close, that you would do your work of, of us helping us dig deep to those things that are keeping us from, from worshiping you truly, of finding our real hope in you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name amen. I want to show you this graphic that I found on idols. I'm not sure if you can see that, but that is the golden calf. You remember when Moses was up with uh, getting communicated from God, the Ten Commandments, when he was gone, God's people decided to build this altar, this golden calf, this, this idol. And so look at what some of the things it says. There's career, there's family, there's money. There's culture, there's power, there's approval, there's idol of fame and of comfort, of success. There's of entertainment, it it describes, and there's some others. We all are wrestling with idols, if we're honest. I like how Elsie Fitzpatrick, in her book, Idols of the Heart, Longing to Long for God Alone, she says this, Idols aren't just stone statues. No, listen. Idols are the thoughts, desires, longings, and expectations that we worship in in place of the true God. Let me say that again. Idols are the thoughts, desires, longings, and expectations that we worship in place of the true God. Idols cause us to ignore the true God, she says, in search of what we think we need. Idols cause us to ignore the true God in search of what we think we need, And so God is reminding us, not, in, not only in this passage, but throughout Scripture, that God says to us in exposing our idols and, and our self-worship, as Paul Tripp has, uh, has beautifully showed us in, in our Lenten series, that idol worship is really about self-worship. But, but God is, this is what God is doing to expose our idols. He's asking us, do you love me with all consuming devotion that rules out all other loves? Do you, God is, even here in Hosea, even in the midst of all the graphic illustrations that he gives, he's basically saying to them, and, he, and God is basically saying to us, do I love him with all-consuming devotion that rules out all other loves The loves of comfort, the love of, of success, the love of approval, the love of entertainment, the love of power, the love of culture, the love of family. Is our worship of the covenant keeping Lord the primary worship that we're giving him. Now, as I look at this list of idols as on this golden calf, I see a variety of my own idols, comfort, family, to name a few. How about you? So as you work with me through this study, I want you to identify what are those things, what are those desires, what are those thoughts that you think you need? What are those things that are in your life that you think you need that makes you more hopeful or more satisfying than the Lord Jesus himself. So this morning I want us to look at the false hope that God's people shown itself in this passage. That false hope in idol worship that leads ultimately to death. And then we're going to look at the real hope, the hope in the covenant-keeping God who leads to life. So in this section of verses 1 through 3 and 9 to 16, we see that God's people were, were worshiping idols. And we see the impact that that worship did to them. First of all, that worship led to death, then it led to continual depravity, and then it led to its own self-destruction. So let me unpack that for you. In verses 1 and verses 15 and 16, we see that idol worship leads to death. What does it say in verse 1? He incurred guilt through Baal and died. Sin expressed in idol worship brings death, both physical and spiritual, ever since the fall of Adam and Eve. Every human being is guilty of sin in all areas of our life and therefore stands under condemnation to eternal ruin, without defense or without excuse. All of us are under the curse brought by the fall of humanity and the promise of God's righteous judgment and death is guaranteed. This is the state from which we all need to be saved. This passage reminds us that when we desert God, when we forget God, to worship our other idols, either it be comfort or family, success, approval, entertainment, whatever it is, our children, we lose the vital source of life that gives us strength and vitality. Life comes from God alone. Throughout Hosea, he's reminding them of that, that I love you, as as, as, even as you betray me, I'm still pursuing you as my my beloved. Because he wanted to let them know that it is life that we need from God, because apart from God, there's only death. If we continue in our ways of idol worship, it will lead to physical and spiritual death. It will lead to finding less strength and less vitality until we come to know God and place our hope there. But not only that, we see that this passage reminds us that idol worship leads to more and more depravity. What does it say in verse 2? They sin more and more in making what? Metal images. And then we see, to the extent that they do that, those who offer human sacrifices kiss calves. God's people, Israel, worshipped the figments of their imagination put into tangible forms. The so-called gods were nothing more than objects of metal crafted by human hands. Can you imagine? God has given these, these people the ability and the gifts to make beautiful things, and yet they use it for the purpose to worship anything else other than God. See, this method in which the idols are created exposes the underlying reality Of them that it's all about self worship what what how can life work for me how can people work for me what do I need from people so that I can be worshiped that I can be put on the throne that's what's going on here this is often goes on in our own search for trying to find meaning in our idols see man-made gods have no capabilities they cannot speak they cannot see they cannot hear nor can the worshipers themselves. Interesting, when the Apostle Paul, when he was speaking in at Athens in Acts 17, he contrasted man-made gods with the true God. And In his letter to Corinth, he says this. He says, an idol has no real existence. An idol has no real existence. What do you mean? That idol has no real life. That idol has no capability of making you whole. That, that idol has no way has the strength to make you a better person. See, man-made gods today take a more sophisticated form, right? Their children, our comfort, our career, money, relationships, success, fame, time. But the self-worship underlying them is the same, and for that reason, God's people are warned throughout biblical history to flee idolatry that leads to depravity and the false hope thinking that that will make us right with God. But the depravity doesn't stop there. We see that it even takes the form of human sacrifices. Many commentators say that children's sacrifices was a ritualistic component of Baal worship. And Israel's participation in it indicates how fast they have fallen from God. Some will say that many God's people joined those who are worshiping Baal. They offered themselves killing babies as a means to worship God. That there's some that say that 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 is not true. But regardless, as we learned last week, what do we say? That they oppressed the poor. Even though they might, might not have sacrificed humans, they still were devaluing. And defrauding and impressing the poor in the way that they were seeking how to appease God. In fact, we know during that time that life was violent, and so murder was happening regardless if they did human sacrifices. We see other effects as they forgotten God, as they began to worship these metal images, thinking that that brought them hope, they did some unhuman things. Even to the point where they kissed the calf. They're paying homage to the calf. They are worshiping the calf, and they're kissing it, thinking that that brought hope, that that brought meaning, that, that brought satisfaction. That's crazy, right? As we pursue idols, it's craziness. And that is what the pursuit of idols does in our heart. We do crazy and unhuman things. Maybe not to the point where we sacrifice our children, but maybe we do in other ways. If we think that our children bring meaning and purpose in our life, we have opportunities to ruin them. But as I listen to many people who struggle with sex and drug and alcohol addiction, they will describe how their pursuit of these idols, these pursuit of these things brought devastation to their own life and to their personal life, to their financial life, to their family life, to their health in itself. See our pursuit of idols bring us more and more into depravity, but we also see that pursuit of idols brings us self destruction. Look at verse three, and 11, and twelve to fourteen. Let's at first look at verse three. We see this idea of um, this idea of idols leading to self destruction. And in this passage, it really reminds us in verse three that we're they're swept away. Hosea uses four pictures for being the sweeping away for extermination, morning cloud, dew, chaff, smoke, all four are entities which disappear. What he's saying is that idolatry is inherently destructive. Look at your own idolatry and its potential harm we can cause for ourselves and others. If comfort is my idol, I can become lazy. I can lack productivity. Or I can destroy relationships with my family if I put my comfort ahead of their needs. Or if success and fame is your idol, that too can wreck families because you're spending all your time and trying to be successful in the work that you're doing, ignoring the other relationships that God has put in your life. Or if children are our idols, it can cause cause our children to be filled with anxiety, depression, or perfectionism, that they need to be perfect for us. That, are some, that is some destructive ways that we, as we live and pursue our idols, can have an impact on others. But not only do we see the destructiveness, self-destructive play and being swept away, we also see this in being foolish. We see that in, 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 in Israel's pursuit of kings and in this notion of an unwise son. Look at verses 9 and 11. He says, I destroy you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers of those whom you said, Give me a king and prince? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. See, again, we're reminded here that in their distress is self-inflicted. They have turned against the Lord who was their helper, who actually wanted to help them. We'll talk more about that. In a few minutes. See, God did not create God's people in Israel to destroy them. He still is calling them, even in this phrase, and even in these verses, to repent. But it seems that Hosea is reminding them of their foolish request of of a king in 1 Samuel 8.6. God's people wanted a king right away. They didn't want to wait on God to give them a king. And he was not happy with them for the asking but he did give them a king. And we notice, we know throughout biblical history how kings have turned out for God's people. They were not very well um, successful in leading people to godliness, leading people to trust and to know God. Their kings have let them down again and again. And Hosea is reminding them of the foolishness to put your, li- put your dependence, to put your satisfaction on these earthly kings. They will not bring you meaning. There's no hope in providing, putting your hope on earthly kings. There's no joy in that. I love what Matthew Henry says in his commentary. He says, God often gives us in anger what we sinfully and inordinately desire, gives us with a curse, and with it gives us, gives us up to our heart's lust. What we inordinately desire, we are commonly disappointed in. I like that point. What, what we are inordinately desiring, we are commonly disappointed in. If you are, are desiring, overvaluing, Things in your life, comfort, fame, relationships, culture, whatever it is, we are commonly disappointed in them, are we not? What he gives us in anger, he says, takes away in wrath. What he gives us because we did not desire it well, he takes away because we did not use it well. You see, God is, again, is wanting them to know that I delight to be your king. He delights to be our king. But if we are seeking other kings or other idols to rule us, they will disappoint and bring self-destruction. So the question for us, what are those other kings in your life for whom you're pursuing satisfaction, where you're pursuing hope? Then he also gives this term unwise son, another way that we're foolish. Ephraim, it says, was an unwise son. Again, forsaking God, their only real hope, they foolishly chose to worship gods of their own design, leading to destruction. Israel is an unwise son, shows us, hear this, the need for a wise son, and that wise son need was fulfilled in Jesus. Whereas Israel sacrificed to idols as a means of personal gain, the wise son, Jesus, sacrificed himself so that others could gain. Because of sin of men and women, we are naturally foolish. No one left to themselves chooses the wide path, the rise path. But Christ, it says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. See, the wise son is Jesus. We get wisdom from Jesus. So as we end this section of finding false hope in idols, Elsie Fitzpatrick asks these things. It said, if you wonder why you choose to worship other gods or idols rather than wholeheartedly devoting yourself to the Lord you love, she says this for us. Examine the thought and desires that captivate your heart. Examine the thought and desires that captivate your heart. That's where you'll find the answer to every sin and failure in your life. Don't be deceived into thinking that you need to develop more willpower. Just do it. Try harder, right? No, that's not not what it's about. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we'll talk about in a second, we need to develop godly thoughts and desires. As we remember God, instead of forgetting God, remembering God is faithful and good as we look to the cross, as we look to the gospel, then we're able to deal honestly with with our idol worship. Lay them at his feet and repent. And that leads us to the real hope that we have in, in worshiping the covenant God who leads us to life. Look at verses 4 and 8. We see that real hope is in the devoted Redeemer. It says, But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. Besides me there is no Savior. I was I, I, was, I, was, I, was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. See, when the Israelites were enslaved and helpless in Egypt, Who's the one that helped them? Yahweh, the Lord, the personal name, right? Redeemed them. In every crisis and difficulty, the Lord has been Israel's Savior. God knew his people when they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. God knows Israel intimately, lovingly, as a member of his family, as a beloved wife, as an adopted child, in that intimate relationship which characterizes the covenant. Israel has known God, for God has known Israel. So when Israel became proud and felt self-sufficient, they forgot the Redeemer, their Savior, and as a result, lost its life. They had real substantive hope in the Savior, Redeemer, and that would provide the strength and vitality in life that they most needed. And it reminds us now, today, that Jesus is our Redeemer, our Savior, our help. He is our real hope. He is the one that provides us strength, vitality, and eternal life as we journey in this road by faith. He is our devoted redeemer, but he's also our divine helper. See, real hope is put trusting and hoping in our divine helper in verse nine. It says, "He destroys your Israel for you're against me, against your helper." He's reminding them again that he is their true helper. He is the real hope for God's people, and that Yahweh has been their help against their foes since the beginning of humankind. Hosea reminds us that because The kings were chosen apart from any thought given to the will of Yahweh, to God. They could not possibly be instruments of salvation. God never wanted their kings to save them. Rather, they serve as instruments of wrath. Ephraim has relied on its king to save them, rejecting the kingship of Yahweh. Yet it brought doom on itself. See, we'll hope we are reminded from this forceful statement, is that only one, our God, covenant-keeping God, rules the affairs of nations and persons. We need to keep that in mind as we wrestle through the impact of this virus. There is one who rules the affairs of nations and persons. There is only one ultimate power in the world, and he is the God of Israel. And he is the God of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And unless human affairs are conducted according to the will of the true divine ruler and helper, these affairs cannot stand. And it reminds us that Jesus is our true king and helper. Invites and us hope in the midst of these challenging, difficult times. And even in our personal lives. He is our, de- our helper. But he's also, we see, our design discipliner. And we can find hope there as well. Real we'll hope there. Look at verse 13. You're going to say this is weird. But let me bear with me as I, as I speak through this passage, this verse. It says the pangs of childbirth come for him. Can I say that that is a hopeful statement? It is a hopeful statement. This is why. God wanted to give the people life, although they chose death. This graphic statement expresses the idea that Israel is being offered an opportunity of life and new birth. And she will be foolish indeed if she does not cooperate in getting born. It is a picture of obstinate senselessness and refusing to change when an opportunity has been given them. See, Israel is experiencing agonizing pangs as the Assyrians grow closer to dominate them. Will Israel not see what was happening to them, was contrasting them to come forth in a new kind of life that brings real hope and real purpose? I love what John Calvin, one of our reformers, eloquently comments. He says this, They, God's people, made no effort to obtain the wished-for end to their evils. For when the Lord afflicts us and we bring forth, this bringing forth is our deliverance. I love that. This bringing forth is our deliverance. Now, how can there be deliverance except we hate ourselves for our sins, except we raise up our minds to God, and thus we open a passage for God's grace? See, this imagery provides us comfort since childbirth is intended not for destruction, but for the increase of new life. Pains are intended to lead us to repentance, apart from which there is no true deliverance. See, this metaphor of childbirth is rich with hopeful promise. The groaning and labors of this present life that we're all experiencing, even today, need not be in vain. Yahweh, our Lord, our personal God, wants us to experience hopeful grace as he does his work of disciplining us in our lives. This is a hope in our repentance of idols, for we acknowledge our need of God. We seek him for help. We dig deep into our souls, asking for help as he's able to produce then godly fruit in our lives. See, the foolishness of human race prefers to rush down the path to death and to hell, rather than to yield to God and seek his mercy and to find grace. God threatens discipline and destruction, yes, but to subdue our pride of our human hearts, to turn us to consider the victory that he offers us in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, which brings me to the last real hope, real hope in the determined victor. Look at verse 14. Doesn't this passage sound familiar somewhere else? I shall rant through them from the power of soul. I shall redeem them from death. Death, where are your plagues? O soul, where are your, is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Where did we hear that before? The Apostle Paul, in his letter to, to the Corinthians in chapter 15, when he's talking about the resurrection in Jesus, he says this Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, rejecting God results in death, the ultimate judgment. And the end was closing in on God's people in Hosea's day. But then, as now, God has triumphed over death. The plagues of death and the sting of soul were defeated in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God, throughout biblical history, has always been the redeemer of his people. Redemption is woven into the law and is woven into many aspects of God's imagery in, in, in the Old Testament. Redemption is part of the sacrificial system, which all prefigured the Messiah, the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus' sacrificial death is the basis of eternal redemption. He paid the release from the oppression of our idols, and he is our only real hope for eternal life. Paul, in his letter to Ephesians, which we read this morning, that Tamara read this morning, in him it says, in Jesus we have what? Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. See, this is our hope in dealing with our idols. We can deal with our idols. We can repent of them. We can go less dependent on them, for the victory is in Jesus, who's our very own victory over sin and death. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And so with that reality that God has defeated our sin on the cross and through his resurrection, then we can honestly go to, the, to him, to God, our covenant-keeping God, with real hope to know that as we, as we can figure out what is going on in our lives that we are sort of attracted to other things, so we can dig deep as we figure out the root of what our idol worship is. What is captivating me more than God? We can do this as we know that God will not leave us or forsake us because a victory has been won in Christ. We can go and we can, we can say, God, help me to figure out why do I want comfort more than you? Why do I want fame more than you? Why do I want family more than you? What is it about this particular idol that, I can, that gives me hope? And as we do that, then as we do that, I encourage us to use the word, apply the word, the promises of God to my heart. I love what um, Elsa Fitzpatrick says. She says the only way that we can avoid the sin of idolatry is by immersing ourselves in spirit-enlightened study of God through the Scripture. Do you hear that? For us to to deal with our idolatry, we need to immerse ourselves in the spirit-enlightened study of God through the Scripture. Here we find true hope as we discover God's presence, as we discover God's promise, as we discover God's power in Jesus Christ. Which brings us, as we figure out the root, as we go to the word, we also need the spirit. We participate with the spirit. Again, listen to what she says. She says, delighting to do God's will means turning, turning from the deception that joy lies outside obedient fellowship with him. We need to consistently disbelieve the imaginations that appear sweeter than God's loving kindness. In order to do this, we have to be convinced that his presence is the loveliest, loveliest treasure there is. And we say that again. We need to be convinced that his presence is the loveliest treasure there is. We must believe that he has lavished our lives with joy and hope. Is there not enough in heaven and a life of endless joys and hope with God to make obedience lovely to you? And then she says this. Only the Spirit can make him look that good. Only the Spirit, as as God applies his word to us, can make God look that good. And so our focus is on Jesus. When we believe the truth about Jesus, who He is, and dwell on the impact of His astounding work and His suffering and His death on the on the cross for our sins and raising to conquer sin and death in His victory, it is impossible to resist the allurement the allurement of the gods of this earth as they whisper their promised pleasures to us. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, and then that's real hope, right? The law and God's promises of judgment, Hosea, are signs of grace and hope, for it shows us our deepest need for a Savior where Jesus Christ has won the victory. And now we can apply that victory as He applies His perfect record to us. And then that leads us to truly worship Him. Hear how honestly Elsie says She says, He knows my weakness. Listen, He knows my weakness. He knows my idols. He knows my struggles the weakness of my love, the weakness of my mind, the weakness of my determination to love him more than all else. Yet, he loves me. He loves me because of the work his son has done for me and justifying me and calling me beautiful. Believe that, friends. That's what the gospel tells us. He knows my weakness. He's the weakness of my love, the weakness of my mind, the weakness of my idols, right? He loves me. And yet, He loves me because of his work his son has done for me in defeating sin and being our victor. See, our real hope then is not in what the world can offer us. Our real hope is fixing our eyes on Jesus. And as we do, he will lead us from the idols that so easily entangle our hearts and that we will find more grace and power and encouragement in worshiping the covenant-keeping God, let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your grace that you give us, Father. We thank you that you care about what, how we worship and what we worship. Lord, we are thankful that these words on Hosea—they are hard words, they're challenging words. They are pointed words for us to consider in even in our own lives. Where are we worshiping? Maybe not uh, mental images of God, but we are kissing the calf somewhere. Where are we kissing the calf? Where are we paying homage to? Is it our family? Is it our fame? Is it our success? Is it our entertainment? Is it um, whatever? It's all about self. Why are we kissing ourselves when we should be kissing the son, kissing Jesus? Because that's where there's life. That's where there's victory. That's where there's hope. As we wrestle with many things going on in this nation, in this world, in our own personal lives, help us to know none of those idols can satisfy us. None of those idols can give us life. None of those idols can give us meaning or purpose. Only you can, Lord Jesus. Help us to indwell in your word, to to allow your word to to just flow through us so that we would remember this good news of the gospel day in and day out. And Father, as we do pray for the concerns of our nation, as we pray for our own church in response to this. Lord, we do pray that you would be our refuge and our strength in this time of trouble. That, Father, we will be looking to you for meaning and for purpose and for hope. That, Father, we would not live out of fear, but we would live out of true hope and a God who cares for us, who is for us, who will help us in the midst of this time that will help us to help others who may be in need. So be with us as a church. Help us to, to trust you together. In this journey during these these months that are ahead of us, that there is uncertainty. Help us to spur one another on to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is our true hope. Father, we do pray for the many officials, our state and local national officials, those who are uh, trying to come up with a vaccine on the medical field, those who are treating in hospitals and urgent care places, doctors and nurses. We pray for grace, protection for them. Father, we pray for a cure that will come more quickly than we we hope. But Father, we pray that you would just care for those who are affected. We pray for the the many schools, universities that are making decisions. We pray for those who are being misplaced because of that. Lord, help the church, help people of the family of God know how to care for them and reach out to them and nurture them and point them to Christ. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org.